This is Salt and Spine. There are books that I always like to carry around with me and ones that I like to have in my kitchen to see. Currently, I'm really inspired by just really beautiful cookbooks that tell a story. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Angela Garbitz. Angela is the founder of the Lincoln, Nebraska pastry shop Goldenrod Pastries, which is focused on inclusive baking. That's the term Angela uses to describe her menu that's full of baked goods without dairy or gluten. Now, Angela has been leading the conversation on dietary sensitive baking and female empowerment for years, and she's been recognized by Time Magazine as one of the most innovative women in food and drink and honored on Cherry Bomb's 100 list. Now, Angela has distilled those recipes and her two decades of professional baking experience into her first cookbook, Perfectly Golden, which offers everything from confetti cookies to her grandmother's famous peach coffee cake, and all of the recipes are easily adaptable. You can use butter or dairy if you'd like, or keep them gluten or dairy-free. And while Perfectly Golden will bring those stellar baked goods into your home kitchen, it's also a book that's really rooted in family and female empowerment, as Angela shares stories of baking with her grandmother, turns the pen over to her mother for an essay, and celebrates the women who run her shop. Now, Angela joined us remotely from her bakery, actually early in the pandemic. We recorded this a bit ago. And if you hear some bustling in the background, her team was just hard at work adapting to the new normal. And stick around for our full conversation. We're closing today by playing a really fun baking game with Angela. And we have a featured recipe for you from Perfectly Golden. So let's head now to our virtual studio where Angela Garbitz joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Angela. How are you? I'm good. It's so fun to be on today. Thank you. you. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you on Salt and Spine joining us virtually. And we're excited to talk about your first cookbook, Perfectly Golden, which is beautiful. Congratulations. Thanks. I like to have a copy with me at all times, too. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I've been carrying it the past couple of days around around the house. Can't go anywhere, but it's, it's beautiful. And we always like to start with our guests by sort of learning a little bit more about how you got to where you are and your life story. So I thought we'd start at the very beginning. I think you grew up and were born in Nebraska. Is that right? Yep. So I am from Lincoln, Nebraska, and that's where I started my business. I left for a little while um, to go to pastry school. I went to the French Culinary Institute in New York and been working in restaurants for, I think, 17 years. And I guess kind of the short story of my business and how I got to Perfectly Golden is that In 2013, I was working at a biotech company in marketing and I kind of like took a little break from kitchens, felt like I needed to get like a real job at a a desk with benefits. It was very awesome. That part was. And I, at that point, realized that I couldn't tolerate dairy and I had to find a whole new way to bake for myself. And I had to, I couldn't use the recipes that I learned in pastry school or the recipes that I grew up with. And so I started Goldenrod Pastries as a blog. And that blog was a way for me to try new recipes and share those recipes with people. And very quickly, I had a whole bunch of people who were contacting me saying that they couldn't make a, have a birthday cake. They hadn't had a birthday cake their whole life or, you know, they couldn't have gluten, they couldn't have eggs, all of these things. And as a chef, first and foremost, I want to feed people. And so I had to find a way I couldn't say no to these people. And so Goldenrod Pastries, which started as a blog within 12 months turned into a brick and mortar store. And so I opened in May, 2015 and 
I just wanted to create a really inclusive place for people to feel like they could come in and be a part of the food conversation. And, you know, not having dairy is such a small thing compared to, you know, what some people have and and what they can't have. And it's really easy to feel excluded. And I wanted people to be able to come in and feel like this was a place for them. And so that's how I started Goldenrod. And that's what Goldenrod still is to this day. We're celebrating our fifth anniversary this year. And I wanted to write a book that really reflected that and a book that would speak to people who have traditional diets. So the recipes can be made traditionally with butter, milk, regular all purpose flour, or kind of give people like a little bit of an introduction and a landscape to baking with their different dietary needs or preferences. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about the book is that it's really accessible for anybody who might want to make vegan recipes or need to make vegan recipes or or not. I want to come back to that, but I want to hear a little bit more about your childhood. That's really helpful context of sort of how you got to the the business as it is today. But you were baking from like a pretty young age. Is that right? With your mother and your grandmothers. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, for sure. So I have my my mom helped a lot with the book and my mom's been super um, helpful with just baking with me and being an influential woman in my life. And so I asked her to come on Instagram live with me last week and we were talking about, you know, like, what was my first memory baking with you? And I was like, am I just making this up in my head? Because I feel like the thing that I remember is basically being pushed over on a chair at the counter and like practically crawling across the counter, making Uh cookies with you. And she was like, Nope, that sounds like exactly right. (laughs) And um, so, you know, she made dessert for every meal and it was just something that was super important to her. And so from a very young age, I just knew that like, treats and dessert were a really special thing and a really important part of life. And, you know, we didn't grow up in a really like exceptional, like we were very middle class. And she just knew that like treating yourself was, she was very ahead of her time. And Uh we had a lot of pastries and we spent a lot of time in the kitchen and her mom was pretty, she was much older. She had my mom really pretty late in life. And so we didn't spend a lot of time in the kitchen together, but the time that we did spend, she would tell like fantastic stories, but her hands were a little too brittle at that point to really help. But my dad's mom, um, she was a Polish immigrant. She came over after World War II. She made fantastic yeastos. She made dinner rolls. She, with poppy seeds on top, she made peach coffee cake, a recipe that's in the book. She made amazing potato salad. And She made very few things, but she made them exceptionally well. And I always knew that when she taught a recipe to me, she knew that she was passing that knowledge along to somebody because maybe she wasn't going to be able to make that anymore. And I realized that later in life. At the time, I was like, oh, good. She's finally teaching me how to make rolls. Uh But she was teaching me because she knew that she couldn't make them forever. And. And those days, that those afternoons that we spent together making those and watching her like arthritic hand roll dough was, it was really powerful. And learning from women in the kitchen has been hugely influential. Yeah, that's so nice. And you really see the presence of your, your family, your mom, your grandma's in the book, which I love. You went to an arts focused high school, is that right? Mm-hmm, yep. But you didn't really feel like you were fitting in you you talk about this in the book you write about this you didn't really feel like you were fitting in and um didn't really think of baking as an art because by that point in high school you had sort of started to take baking more seriously is that right yeah how did that that sort of happen and when did it take what did it take for you to think that what you were doing was a, a craft really yeah so I 
I mean, it's just what I love to do. It's all I wanted to do. And one of my sister's friends was working at the restaurant at a golf club and she got me a job working on the line, making, doing salads and desserts. And pretty soon, I mean, this sounds crazy saying it out loud, but one of the the pastry chef and his wife were the only people in the pastry kitchen. And they, as pastry chefs sometimes do, just had a crazy, very dramatic exit. And so Uh I got put in the pastry kitchen when I was 17. And it was a dream come true for me. But so I was learning from all of these amazing chefs and cooks at the time and started to bake so much more at home. I had a three ring binder that I was just filling with recipes that I was printing off the internet and um, had cookbooks. And I was going to Barnes and Noble and writing down recipes because, you know, the French laundry cookbook was $75. And so I would just like copy down all their recipes and go home and make them. And I, at the art school, everybody was doing photography or sculpture or painting. And I was horrible at art I couldn't figure out how to paint or draw and where we had a a school art show and I was like what am I going to do I have nothing to show like I have nothing I don't do any art and one of the teachers said well why don't you bake for the art show and I was like I can do that and she was like yeah of course like that's what you do that's what your art is and it was like mind-blowing to me and around that same time I realized that people could go to school just for pastries and I didn't know what I wanted to do for school. I The only thing I ever wanted to do was bake. And I didn't know anybody else who did. And so I felt very like, yeah, very different and very left out. And when she said that to me, I was like, oh, wow, there's this whole world out there that I could be a part of. You mentioned the French Laundry Cookbook and that you would go and copy down <laughs> the recipes. You write about that in the book. It seems like you took an interest in cookbooks pretty early on. Were your was your mom using cookbooks when she cooked, or your grandma's, or was that sort of something that you uniquely sort of were drawn to? Um, my mom used the same two or three Betty Crocker cookbooks. She had really uh-huh. beautiful, like a beautiful recipe cabinet that um, had recipe cards from many different people, but. I remember the first cookbook I got was Emeril Lagasse's cookbook and Uh it was right when the Food Network came out and I just immediately like I remember just holding it and taking it with me everywhere. I was five years old or six years old and like I just wanted to have this cookbook with me and I guess I've never thought about that. That's a really good question but I just loved them and I felt like especially because like you know at that time I was born in 1986. I feel like when I was growing up, there really wasn't the internet and the place right. where you, where you got recipes and learned about the world and learned about what you were interested in was from books. And yeah. I, I would just sit in Barnes and Noble and copy down recipes for hours. <laughs> yeah. I used to do the same thing. That's, that's really, hilarious. yeah. So you graduate high school and you're sort of starting to think about baking more seriously. Were you thinking about it as a career then? Because then you go um, to get a degree in food science. Is that right? I did. And college was a really natural next step for my family. And I'm really glad that I finished my degree in food science, because I also that meant that I got to get credits in the culinary school and had to. And so it was kind of like my way of doing both and satisfying both like my family and what I wanted to do. So um, yeah, that's what I did. I went to um, the French Culinary Institute for their six month pastry program and was able to put that toward my culinary science and food science degrees. And while you're there in New York City, you also had an internship. Is that right? 
Yeah, I had a couple. I worked in an internship at the school with a culinary technologist who's now one of my best mentors and friends, um, Dave Arnold. And we did a lot of really, at the time, it was like everybody, it was like Wiley Dufresne was doing WD-50 and he was making food that looked different, like where I was working as well. I worked at Jean George and Johnny Uzzini was the pastry chef there. And he was making like noodles out of rhubarb juice and molecular gastronomy was like at the peak of its, um, of its life. And so I did a lot of work with that stuff at my internship at school. And then I also worked in the pastry kitchen at Jean George. And you talk in the book about this sort of desire for some period of time to like stay in New York city and work as a pastry chef there but that you you say you knew in your heart you wanted to return to your roots in Nebraska. Was that something you grappled with or did you sort of always know that you wanted to end up in your hometown? I think that I knew ultimately I wanted to have a bakery and it's something that I wanted for a really, really long time. Like it's just from a very, very young age, I just wanted to have a bakery. And I knew that financially that was going to be really hard for me in New York City. And yeah. I got um, a couple of job offers and in New York and you know, I started breaking down the cost of living and I knew that like, I'm not independently wealthy. And I knew that it was going to be really, really hard for me. And with the goal to start a bakery, I knew that Lincoln would give me really great opportunities. And I love it here. I feel like there's a lot of room to be creative. And there's a lot of freedom, I feel that comes with like, the space that we have here. I, I feel really, really lucky that I ended up here. Yeah. You talked about earlier how how quickly it sort of happened when you started blogging and then sort of doing some um, baking on the side of your full-time job. And then I think within a year of doing that, you had opened the doors of your bakery. How did you sort of balance that? Did you expect it would sort of go that fast? I mean, can you just give us some insight into how that all worked for you? Yeah, there was no balance. So I had terrible lighting in my kitchen and in my house at the time. And so the best light was at like 8.45 in the morning and I was supposed to be at work at nine. And so I would quickly like make stuff in the morning or make it the night before and then take the picture for social media at like 8.45, 8.50 and then like slide into my meetings at 9.05. And I was having people pick up orders from my work parking lot over my lunch break. I would go home every night and make orders. I was doing little pop-up shops on the weekends wedding tastings. I remember one Valentine's Day order in particular. I knew that they were going to be coming at a certain time. And I had a pop-up shop that afternoon. And I told my husband, I was like, I'm going to take a really quick shower. If these people knock on the door, do not let them in. Like, Or they were knocking on the door. I was like, don't let them in. Don't let them in. I'm going to go to the Uh kitchen. I'm going to grab their treats. I'm going to give it to you and you're going to give it to them. So I'm in my robe with a towel around my head. And I am in the fridge getting the stuff to give to him. And I shut the refrigerator door and these customers are in my kitchen (laughs) and my husband had let them in. So there was no balance. Um, And I was like, Oh my gosh, hello. Hi, here I am. Welcome to my kitchen. Um, It was just kind of like, I said no to nothing. And I knew that like I had been given this chance and I didn't want to blow it. So I was really burning the candle at both ends. And when I found that the storefront that I ended up in, I signed the lease and then got funding because I basically went there over a lunch break, saw it and agreed to it and then had two weeks to get a business loan. 
And so I got my loan and I told my job basically five weeks before and built my store over my lunch breaks and then opened. Yeah. That's crazy and impressive. No balance. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No balance. You write in the book about how that moment though of opening Goldenrod and opening the doors, you you use the phrase it was a turning point for you in many ways. And you say that the kitchen is the one place you've always felt like yourself and felt confident and proud. And you talk about some of the like things in your past that you were sort of like shedding, I guess we could say, in that moment of opening Goldenrod. Can you tell us what that sort of meant for you? personally, because you write so beautifully, I think about that in the book. Yeah, um, this is part of the writing process that I wondered if I should include, because in cookbooks, it's usually just really about food. But I felt like it was really important to talk about what this experience actually meant to me, because people read cookbooks for a lot of different reasons. They read it for the stories, they read it for they only go to the recipes. And if you don't want to read about my story, you can go to the recipes. And so I decided that it was important to include. And You know, I had been through a lot of bad relationships. I had been through a lot of bad friendships. I had really, really low self-confidence. I didn't really know who I was. And, you know, through the process of building this restaurant or this business and realizing that I was making something that could make a difference to people and I was able to do something that I loved, like it was really transformative to me. And I think that shedding is a really great way of saying it. I haven't thought of it in that term, but it was almost in like building. I was working with a lot of male contractors and I didn't know how to build a storefront. And I think I, I know I told them at one point, I said, basically it just has to be really cute was one of the things I said to them. And they laughed at me and I said, no, like you don't understand. Like I knew that it had to be a great aesthetic. People had to come in and feel really like they wanted to take pictures. Like I knew that, that I had to make something where people wanted to be there. And In that journey of working with the contractors who were all kind of condescending to me, I found my voice in a different way than I had before. And I knew that I had very little money to build my store and they knew how much money I had. And I also knew how it had to look. And I found a lot of power in my voice through that process. And I found a lot of power and confidence being able to do what I love and the person I am now is completely different than the person I was in 2013. And I owe it to Goldenrod. I owe it to this journey. I mean, not to say that I didn't do it for myself, but like without Goldenrod, I don't know who I would be. How did those lessons and those those ways that you changed or, or you evolved um, impact how you run your business, how you think about yourself as a, as a boss, as a leader, as a person who's looked up to in the baking industry? I think that inclusivity is always first and foremost, like the most important thing. And that that is a very generic term. And so I talk about inclusive baking so that people come in and feel like they have something to eat. I try to be very inclusive with the way that I lead. I try to try to talk to people about like, OK, if, you know, they're acting this certain way, are they acting that way because they're really just like don't like their job, not doing their job? Or like, is there something more to the story? So like, how can we talk through this a little bit to like, understand the situation a little bit better? I think that it's important to I'm very open talking about like my mental health. I'm, I want to make Goldenrod a place where people feel comfortable to be who they are. And we've had a few people as every business does who just aren't a great fit with the business. And like, luckily, they've all kind of like, moved on to something that better serves them. And so the people that we have who have stayed with me for for the longest, which, you know, is anywhere between two and five years are people who really understand 
how to make you feel like yourself and how to be yourself. I have never worked in a place. I've never been in a community of people who really make me feel more like myself. And so first and foremost, I just try to make it a very open, inclusive, I probably talk too much. I (laughs) just tell people everything. And I, you know, I think that it's important to have that environment where you're open with your staff so that they can in turn be open with you. Sure. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Angela Garbitz. Don't go anywhere. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine. This week, you'll find a chance to win your own copy of Perfectly Golden and a recipe for Angela's double chocolate cookies. Every week, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks, from Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostra and Carla Hall to today's guest, Angela Garbitz. Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. We also just launched our Salt and Spine Cookbook Club, where you can cook along with one of our featured authors each month, and then join us for a virtual dinner party with the author. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content, starting at just $2 a month. You can find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. And now back to our conversation with Angela Garbitz, author of Perfectly Golden. And you have a an all-female staff or a predominantly all-female staff? Predominantly female. Yeah, we. I woke up one day a couple, three years ago and was like, oh my gosh, I only work with women. And growing up having not super great relationships with my female peers, I was like, Lord, I was like, Oh my gosh, like I work with all women and like, I feel good about myself. And that was a huge deal for me. That was a turning point. And I was like, okay, I have to capitalize on this. And I have to like, I have to make it a point to make other women feel good about other women. And I think it was, I was at a dinner party where I didn't know a lot of people and somebody came up to me and she said, hi, like, you don't know me, but my daughter is a big fan of your store. And she comes in and she came home one day and she was like, mom, it's just so cool to see these women working so well together. It's really inspiring to me. And it's like, oh my gosh, I guess we did it. And that to me is huge to give an example, example, hopefully to girls who, or anyone, not just girls, to people who feel like they don't fit in in one way or another. And to see a place where we're just like letting our freak flags fly and we're just being who we want to be. And I hope that that can be really like inspiring to a few people out there. Yeah, I love that story. That's so heartwarming. Let's talk a little bit about gluten-free baking, dairy-free baking, maybe for people who either are new to it or are maybe turning to your cookbook as a resource because that's something they want or need to do. Are there sort of tips or like pieces of advice that you usually give people who say, I want to do more baking and I, I want or need to bake in these these ways? Yeah. So I'm a big fan of making sure that you keep fat and sugar in your recipes. I think that um, that's the first thing that I see taken out of a lot of recipes with different dietary needs or preferences. And 
that's the one thing that can really break a recipe. So I, I don't deal with like healthy or sugar free baking. So I always think it's important to keep the fat and sugar in it, first of all. And then when you're looking at and I talk about this a lot in the intro of the book going through different fats and milks and flours, but look for ingredients that are similar to the consistency of what you would use otherwise. So if you're looking for a whole milk replacement, like almond milk is a really rich or soy milk, if you can do soy, like that's a really rich non-dairy milk. If you're using heavy cream for a recipe, look at like full fat coconut milk. So really looking at like the consistency similarities is super helpful. Um, sure. And also, also looking at gluten-free flour blends. I think that making sure that gums are really low on the ingredient list. Like they're not the first or second ingredient or third or fourth. Like they're very at the end. That means that they have the lowest amount of all the ingredients in, in the mix. And so gums work as gluten would work in a recipe. They act as a binder, but if gums are really high up on the the list, like if you go like rice flour, sorghum flour, guar gum, and then a bunch of more ingredients on a bag of commercial gluten-free flour, the chances are that that's going to be a super gummy flour and you're going to get really, really dense pastries. And so I kind of go through that, through that in the book. So the least amount of gums yeah. you can use and look for um, consistency similarities in your fats and milks. As a person who's sort of trained in classical French pastry, how do you now approach recipe testing or experimentation? And obviously you're sort of now building on many years of doing gluten-free and dairy-free breaking, but I'm curious into your process and how you think as a person who is sort of um, experimenting with those alternatives. Yeah. So I look at a recipe and I know that um, rice flour blends and rice flour based um, gluten-free flours are really good for cakes and pound cakes, anything that you want to have like a really tender crumb. And so there's the Bob's Red Mill one-to-one baking flour that I recommend in the book is really good. I always use that if I'm going for a recipe like one I just mentioned. If I'm making a new cookie recipe, I always start with a sorghum flour blend to begin with. So I kind of have my flours that I have categorized in for different items. And so I start with them. But like this weekend, I... I made a recipe, a vegan gluten-free recipe that I found online that I was like, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be a new vegan gluten-free cake recipe. And I followed all those rules and it was so bad. And so I think that like recipe testing in general, especially when you're using um, these kind of untraditional, non-traditional ingredients, like it can still go really wrong. But um, I think that just following some rules of like, I know that I always like to make cake. So make sure that you have this flour on hand, or I always like to make cookies. So I have this flour on hand is a really good place to start. Yeah. Do you have favorite recipes in the book? I know that's a loaded question. (laughs) I do. Um, The cookie I want to make next, probably I got in so much trouble from not so much trouble, but my editor was like, you can't say that every recipe is your favorite in the introduction. (laughs) I was like, but I only do it like 75% of the time, right? Probably. The cookie I want to make next is snow on plowed ground. And yeah. so that cookie goes by a lot of different names. Um, I've heard, seen it called like an earthquake or a flourless chocolate cookie. Um, somebody I worked with for a while named Leslie, she was like, we were making our holiday cookie boxes. And she said, well, I would really like us to include snow on plowed ground. And I was like, okay, Leslie, that's great. But I have no idea what you're talking about. And it's really beautiful. It's a beautiful name for a cookie. So it's a flourless chocolate cookie with like meringue and melted chocolate. And then you roll it in powdered sugar before you bake it. And then it kind of grows and 
not explodes, but cracks and you get all these little powdered sugar and then you have the dark chocolate crevices and it looks like you have plowed through snowy right. snow covered ground and i just thought that was the most beautiful name for a cookie and i've just been craving a really chocolatey cookie but the whole bun section the morning buns the lemon morning buns are like i feel like the bun section is really great um i hope that people like it so i give you two basic bun dough mm-hmm. recipes one that's really good gluten-free and dairy-free and one that's really good vegan and then I give you a bunch of bun recipes and the morning bun is rolled in a citrus sugar and well, it's brushed with a citrus syrup and then rolled in a citrus sugar. And I mean, I could eat that all day. Yeah. Those look incredible. (laughs) But I hope that once you see like the basic bun dough recipes and then you see all these different versions, you can also kind of start looking around your kitchen, especially right now and see what you have on hand. And like, how can I make this work for what I have on hand or this is what I really, really love. And you have a chocolate bun, you have a peanut butter bun, but Hey, could I make like the peanut butter bun with the chocolate ganache from the chocolate bun and like kind of mix and match and start working with buns in a way that makes you really excited. Yeah, totally. You mentioned earlier that your mom helped you with pieces of this cookbook and and was a um, resource to you. There's also an Mm -hmm. essay from your mom that you included in the book. I wanted to ask about that. It's Mm -hmm. titled cooking with significant women And your mom writes about her mom and um, her grandmother and just sort of gives a lot of context. Was that something that she wrote specifically for the book? How did that sort of come to be? And how did you decide you wanted something like that in here? I just, I think she's a really incredible writer. We have very different writing styles. Her writing is very factual. Um, She's a journalist and technical writer by training. And Uh I'm a very emotional writer. Um, But I knew that I wanted to include something from her. My career and my love for food is directly from her. And she tells a wonderful story and she has learned from and knew and is from so many incredible women. And I knew that personally I wanted to have those stories recorded for myself. And I just thought this was a really good excuse to get her to do it because I think so often we want those stories recorded from our families, but we never get around to it. And so I thought this was a great opportunity. And I mean, this is a great example of the kind of person she is. I said, mom, can you write an essay for the book? And she was like, I suppose, what is my prompt? And I said, I don't know. How about like just cooking with significant women? And she sent me an email the next day and the subject line was cooking with significant women. (laughs) And that's what she had titled her essay. But, you know, I'm so thankful. She talks about One thing that I think is so wild that she included right now specifically is she talks about my grandmother, her mother living through the 1918 flu and uh, pandemic. And my grandmother was the only one of five people in her family who did not contract the flu somehow. And she was six years old at the time and she had to take care of her family and she made food for them, stoked the fire, made them hot chocolate. And I just think stories like that, like I hope that, this essay inspires other people to record their family history because it's invaluable. Yeah. You also, I want to talk briefly about some of the other work you do um, before we end with a couple of cookbooky things. Um, You, you started this, um, I want to call it a movement. I don't know if that's the right term, but this, this um, effort called empower through flower, I think three years ago, am I getting that right? Three, four years ago. Um, which happens every March and is now nationwide. How did you decide to to launch that? And can you tell us a little bit of, more about how it exactly it works? 
Yeah. So Empower Through Flower is, we call it a campaign and it's um, a women's history month campaign that um, started three years ago. And I just knew that along the same lines of finding a way to impact and inspire and get involved with young women and help just find a way to work with them and help in some way, I decided to start this campaign. And so Empower Through Flower connects females in the food industry, whether they are chefs, pastry chefs, business owners, or influencers, somehow to come together for Empower Through Flower. We had over 120 people involved this year. Um, Unfortunately, Women's History Month is in March, and March got a little bit crazy this year. So Empower Through Flower was a little different this year. But for example, Goldenrod does an item every year, and we ask everybody involved to do this. Um, This year, we did my mom's like date and oat streusel bar. And So every year for Empower Through Flower, the money that that each individual raises goes back to the nonprofit that we choose that year. Yeah, that's amazing. So we talked about your love of cookbooks at an early age, um, sitting at Barnes & Noble, the French Laundry Cookbook obviously seemed like an important one to you. We're a show on cookbooks, so we always like to ask people, are there like other particular books or particular authors who have been really important to you throughout your career? That's a good question. Um, I There are books that I always like to carry around with me and ones that I like to have in my kitchen to see. Um, I'm trying to think. I Currently, I'm really inspired by just really beautiful cookbooks that tell a story. So there's um, a restaurant in Los Angeles called La Galaguetza, and they have a cookbook that came out and I believe her name is Bricia Lopez. And her cookbook talks a lot about the history of Oaxacan cooking. And this hasn't necessarily like personally impacted me, but it's a really, really beautiful cookbook and tells a beautiful story. Um, Julia Tertian is an amazing cookbook author and she tells yes. incredible stories. Um, she has a, a great podcast as well. I love her cookbooks and I love that she makes really accessible food. She does a lot of cooking for her wife, Grace, and she tells really beautiful stories about cooking for her. I love Priya Krishna's um, book, Indianish. Um, That one was really influential to me as well, because when I was putting together a proposal for this book and really thinking about this book, one thing that I loved about Priya's book is how much of a focus she put on her family and like the way that food and her family and her upbringing all went together. And, you know, she's an amazing journalist. She writes for the New York times, Bon Appetit. She does all of these amazing things. And I feel like to see that coming back to her family was really inspiring to me. So that's kind of where I've been focusing lately. Yeah. And she worked on her book with her mother, just like you did. She Um, did. Her mom is so cool. So cool. And her quarantine Instagram stories are just incredible. (laughs) I'm obsessed. I'm like, okay, what's her mom going to make for happy hour tonight? What? Like, they're just so good and so like honest and not trying to be anything other than they are. Right. Well, we always end with little games. So I thought, uh, and we always use these these cards. So I thought today I tried to pull out cards or categories of cards that would be relevant to you in the baking world. So I narrowed it down to two categories, which is secret ingredient and flavor. So I thought we'd do a couple, two or three rounds and I'll draw one of each. And the challenge is, can you create in your mind a pastry um, of some sorts that 
pulls together both of those things. Oh my gosh, um, this is a lot of pressure. <laughs> no pressure, but the first secret ingredient is pumpkin. Oh, this I feel like this is a good combo. And then flavor is cinnamon. Oh, come on. This is a great <laughs> That's one. That's like super easy, right? What do it's we make with pumpkin and cinnamon? Okay, we there's a great pumpkin donut recipe in this cookbook. And it's a baked donut recipe because I didn't have the ability to add more hood, exhaust hood, and a fryer at my store. So they're baked donuts. It's a pumpkin donut. And then once they're baked, you roll them and you dip them in melted coconut oil and then dip them in a spiced sugar blend that has black pepper, cardamom, cinnamon. And once the coconut oil kind of soaks in and sets a little bit, it kind of hardens a little bit too. So you get this like kind of crunch from the sugar and from the coconut oil and you have like the softest, fluffiest donut. That is one of my favorite recipes from the book as well. That sounds delicious. I also loved in the book that you noted pumpkin. I think it's a pumpkin bread, but pumpkin is great because it can sort of fill in for a lot of the dairy that you might be putting into a recipe. Absolutely. It acts as a really good binder where eggs might not be used. Right. Okay. That's great. Round two, we have coffee beans is our secret ingredient and our flavor is lemon. Okay. Honestly, my first thought would be a cookie. So I would use like a basic cookie dough recipe, like a chocolate chip cookie recipe, take the chocolate chips out, do some lemon zest and coffee grounds and maybe add like Mm, white chocolate chips or I mean some people add like cornflakes to their cookies you could do that to add a little crunch or pretzels I think that would be a really good cookie like kind of a fresh and also like kind of a kitchen sink cookie yeah a little bit of peppiness from the coffee exactly I love that okay final round secret ingredient this is the one people are always afraid to get gummy bears I feel like oh my gosh you can handle I can it. do this. <laughs> and flavor is nutmeg. What a weird one. I, know. I wonder, okay, can you melt gummy bears? That's I bet that's the go-to. <laughs> is it? Yeah. I mean, you could put gummy bears in a cookie, no problem. Easy breezy. Or you could do, okay, I got it. So I don't know if this is like a Midwest thing or if people elsewhere made this, but like dirt in a cup dessert. I know it, but maybe it's because I'm from the Midwest too. So I don't know if it is specifically a Midwest thing, but yes, dirt in a cup. So there's a chocolate tart recipe in the book. So dirt in a cup is basically chocolate pudding um, with crushed up chocolate cookies as the dirt on top and then like gummy worms sticking out of it. So what if, okay, we take this chocolate tart recipe in the book and make a little extra crust, crumble it on top of the tart as well and then stick little gummy bears in it and then put the nutmeg in the crust in the dirt and you have like the uh-huh. cutest gummy bear pond, chocolate pond. That's amazing. I like that would fancy, be so cute. <laughs> yeah, fancy like French tart that's also dirt in a cup. <laughs> With gummy bears like floating across the top. Right. I love it. That's awesome. Well, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine, Angela. It was so fun to have you. Oh, thank you. I, I, this is really lovely. Thank you very much. 
And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes and join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Greetings Adventurers is an award-winning comedy real play D&D podcast that has been running for a decade with 427 episodes in our first campaign. I didn't have back problems or kids when we started. My favorite thing about the show is that it's a group of friends playing D&D who don't take anything too seriously. Right, like would a normal group use a sphere of annihilation as a toilet? We threw so much mayonnaise in there. We just started a new campaign, so it's a great time to jump in. Or you can listen to our first level one all the way to level 20 adventure and have hundreds of hours of entertainment. New episodes every Monday. So listen to Greetings Adventurers on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>